Hi, and thanks for listening to Here and Now Anytime. We've got new episodes every weekday afternoon, so make sure you don't miss anything by following and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. And if you've already subscribed, tell a friend about us. Now here's the show. We've got a lot to do to fix this, to fight against lobbyists who keep trying to weaken these rules as they did three or four years ago. Um, That's our mission. That's our job. Making freight rail safer after the disaster in East Palestine, Ohio. It's Tuesday, February 21st, and this is Here and Now, Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, Russia walks away from an Obama-era nuclear treaty. We take a look at the future of plant-based meat substitutes after some companies report a drop in demand. And we've got some book recommendations for Black History Month. First, though, that was Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown we heard a moment ago, calling out industry lobbyists for stalling safety reforms in the freight rail industry. He's a Democrat, but the outrage has been bipartisan as health concerns continue to mount in East Palestine, Ohio, after the toxic spill there. The Biden administration says it's responding. Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Michael Regan is in East Palestine today. And Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg has also said he wants new safety measures enforced. Matthew Cunningham Cook has been writing about the rail industry for the website The Lever, and he told Scott Tong that the government has a classification for high-hazard flammable trains, or HHFT, but that the train in Ohio was not considered one. No, because there weren't a sufficient amount of of train cars carrying what they designated to be uh, materials that qualified. Oh. Uh, Governor DeWine of Ohio pointed out that nobody in his state knew uh, that the East Palestine train was carrying highly flammable materials because that train did not meet the standard of what a high-hazard ha- flammable train constituted. Uh, under the high hazard flammable train. And is this a definition? Is this a definition that the industry has been lobbying to narrow? Yeah, absolutely. They pumped millions of dollars in campaign cash into lawmakers of both parties, but particularly Republicans. Republicans aggressively fought any expansion of the HHFT designation. And uh, we know that the industry is aggressively resistant to any type of regulation. They will fight it. Uh, And that's been proven time and again. And and that, in my view, is why you see, why you still see over a thousand derailments every year, why Mm -hmm. you still see frequent railroad worker accidents and injuries, and why you see uh, accidents like you do in, in East Palestine. Another question is the technology of brakes in this case. Uh, For this train, do we know how old or new the brake technology was? Yeah, so almost all freight trains in the U.S. use technology that comes from 1868, uh, and it's Mm. basically a ricochet braking technology. So the engine brakes, and then the first car brakes, and then the second car brakes. There's revolutionary new modern braking technology that's about 15 to 20 years old called electronically controlled pneumatic brakes, mm-hmm. and those allow the train to cars to all stop at the same time. Uh, 
Uh, and that is a safer method. And that's why Amtrak, most Amtrak trains use ECP brakes, for mm-hmm. example, uh, as well as there are existing requirements that any train transporting nuclear waste must have ECP brakes. I understand the the Obama administration pushed a regulation to require this braking technology. What happened? Yeah, uh, congressional Republicans fought it. They The Obama administration limited the scope of the rule. Uh, and then when Trump came in, uh, he repealed it entirely uh, after receiving, you know, pressure from the railroad industry to repeal it mm, and okay. congressional Republicans. Is it clear why this freight train in East Palestine, Ohio, derailed? Do we know yet? Yeah, the NTSB has not finished its its investigation, oh, the National, uh, the National Safety Transportation Board. Safety Board. Okay. Um, but uh, we do know that there was a, an axle that was on fire. Uh, and so that was, uh, so yeah, Secretary Buttigieg today suggested that uh, they were going to be calling on railroads to expand the usage of uh, heat sensors. So that would help to uh, ad- address this. Um, that's another kind of, frankly, core issue is that there were only two people uh, on the train and, and one trainee, so three people in total. So in a 150-car train, it becomes, with such small staff, uh, it becomes very hard for uh, humans to track uh, safety incidents on the rail. And so that's, that's, that's another kind of core component here is that the rail industry has aggressively sought to downsize its workforce. Mm. They treat their workers pretty poorly. 30 years ago, being a rail worker was was a good job. Uh, now it's not um, uh, because it's it's stressful. It's it's dangerous. Uh, workers are overworked. Um, and uh, the pay and benefits are just not what they used to be mm-hmm. uh, relative to the average worker's wage in the U.S. And just stepping back uh, briefly, when you look at this industry, your team has been reporting a lot on this. As far as the freight rail industry carrying hazardous materials, is it getting riskier? Yeah, we know that trains are carrying more and more hazardous materials uh, than ever before. Uh, they're doing it with a smaller workforce uh, than ever before. Uh, and they're doing it with a workforce that is also not self-replicating because the jobs are getting worse and worse. And there's uh, uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of vacant positions across the railroads that they can't fill. Uh, and yeah, we do know that uh, accidents per train mile uh, have gone up in the last decade. Uh, so it's there's a real consequence to the industry's aggressive lobbying against any expanded safety regulation. Matthew Cunningham Cook is a reporter for The Lever. Matthew, thanks for taking the time. Great. Thanks so much, Scott. I appreciate it. After the break, here and now's security analyst stops in to help us make sense of Putin's decision today to scrap the last remaining nuclear arms control pact between Russia and the United States. The U.S. and Russia have one nuclear arms treaty still active. And today, Vladimir Putin said he would suspend Moscow's participation in the treaty's verification program. 
Meantime, President Biden spoke today in Poland, condemning Russia's continued invasion of Ukraine. For more on the state of U.S.-Russia relations, we're joined by Hero Now security analyst Jim Walsh in the studio. He's senior research associate at MIT. Hi, Jim. Good to see you, and I mean that literally to uh, see you. And I see you. This treaty, known as the New START Treaty, puts limits on nuclear warheads. Putin says Russia is now suspending participation. First of all, what does suspending mean? Suspending means that we have this agreement. Both sides agree to limit the total number of nuclear warheads that are deployed. And in order to enforce or rather to verify that agreement, both sides agree to allow the other side in, allow them to inspect and confirm that everyone's doing what they're supposed to do. What Putin has announced is that he's not going to allow those inspections. He's not going to allow the verification that is part of the agreement. But he's not saying he's completely pulling out and building a rash of new, new, new nuclear weapons. But he is, for now, for now, ending the verification of that agreement. And as you said, this is the last treaty on the books between the U.S. and Russia. Big deal? Uh, you know, at one level, you can we can all reassure ourselves and say, eh, it's not such a big deal. I mean, it's just words. You can reverse course. Uh, but on the other hand, when you put it together with everything else that is happening, it doesn't look good. And then when you look half a step forward, let's be honest, Putin is on the verge, if it hasn't already started, on the verge of launching a massive offensive in Ukraine. He's losing the war. He's going to re, uh, attempt to retake advantage. Now, He's making nuclear threats in advance of doing that, just mm -hmm. like he did a year ago. If things start to go really badly, I, I think there's some real question about, you know, could this take on a different element? The speech in Russia, which is what we're all quoting right now, was very clear. Putin is framing this as it's Russia versus the U.S. It's mm -hmm. really not Ukraine versus Russia. It's Russia versus the U.S. And so the stakes are rising. I just want to restate a couple things. You said just to... Set the table for this question. Putin frames this as the U.S. on one side, Russia on the other. Russia is threatening to use nuclear weapons in this war that it's kind of stalled in. What strikes you about this moment? I, I think this is a, a dangerous year at a time when a lot of things are sort of starting to fray and come apart. Last year was the first year in a long time where the world had more nuclear weapons rather than less. Uh, disarmament has stalled. Other countries are building. People are getting nervous. And then we have this bleeding fire in the middle of Europe. Uh, it's an un... You know, the other thing that bothers me, the second, is what we're talking about. There used to be a time in my professional career when leaders did not make public nuclear threats. They might have done it privately, but they didn't do it publicly. Trump, Kim, Putin have all made public threats. Now we have Putin talking about resuming nuclear testing. He said, well, I won't do it first. I'll only do it if they do it. But now we're talking about it. And now we're even talking about a war with China over Taiwan. We're talking about a bunch of things we've never talked about before, and that's worrisome. You know, I was looking this morning at the, this long history of nuclear arms talks between Washington and Moscow. I, I remember studying this alphabet soup that goes back at least to the Kennedy administration, <laughs> yes. ABM, SALT-1, SALT-2, INF, START, and now this new START. What have those talks and those treaties accomplished in your view? I think they really saved us. And I think we got used to it and then took them for granted. You know, way back when, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and we've talked about it, Scott, I think, you know, on the anniversary, yeah. mm -hmm. we came very close to wiping out the planet. 
I mean, we made we assumed that we were going to go into Cuba, not knowing that they already had nuclear weapons. That could have been a nuclear war. And I think that event shocked the leaders and it shocked the public. And people began to get sober and we had a lucky coincidence of factors that came together. So one president had arms control and that was Kennedy and that was limited uh, partial testament treaty. And then each successive president on and on and then it sort of petered out and now we're reversing course. So the, we've had this great thing and it's worked really well and now we're sort of letting it slip through our fingers. And Jamie, as you look around the world, we have nine members of the nuclear club worldwide, some other countries beginning to talk about their own nuclear deterrent. When you think about it that way, how relevant are these U.S.-Russia treaties anyway? Oh, I think they're incredibly important because they give people confidence to stay out of the nuclear business. If everyone starts reaching for their own nuclear weapons, if the system starts to break down, if they can't depend on anyone, I think it really encourages people to strike out on their own, which is dangerous. And in a couple seconds, uh, Putin is talking about restarting nuclear tests. Is that important to be watching? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, that would be a game changer. I don't think it's going to happen, but he's talking about it, which is what's different, and it would be a game changer. That is Here and Now security analyst Jim Walsh. Jim, thank you. Thank you. Coming up, after it seemed like meat substitutes were catching on, companies like Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods are now seeing sales and interest slump. After the break, Scott considers the industry's fortunes and whether a plant-based burger is really any better for you than one made from meat. Stick around. So are you a fan of plant-based meat? For more than a decade, proponents have proclaimed it is the future. Indeed, in 2019, the company Beyond Meat began selling shares to the public and the stock soared more than eight times. Even one Kim Kardashian got in on the hype. I believe so much in the mission of Beyond Meat that I've stepped in to help with my greatest asset, my taste. This plant-based meat is not only amazingly delicious, but it's also better for you and better for the planet. Well, since then, plant-based meat has drooped, wilted. The sales are down as are deals with big chains. And the other big industry giant, Impossible Foods, has sliced off 20% of its workforce. Let's talk about this now with Dina Shanker. She's food reporter at Bloomberg. Dina, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So... You know, in the year or two before the pandemic, which I guess is how I measure time now, plant-based <laughs> meat was such a thing. Uh, here's Pat Brown, the CEO at the time of Impossible Foods in 2019. We've been using animals since prehistoric times as our only technology for producing meat. That technology hasn't fundamentally improved. Not only do we start out being vastly more efficient, but we're continuously improvable in every way that matters to consumers. So, Dina, in those early days when it was really a thing, what was working about plant-based meat and its sales pitch to all of us? A lot of people were really excited about the idea of a product that could deliver on the taste and experience of people's favorite foods, like a burger or a sausage, but not have the same environmental impact, no animal welfare issues, and potentially maybe even be healthier. And yeah, here we are, four years on or so, and the arrows are all down. Sales 
stock price, restaurant orders, jobs at these companies. Is it clear why? Well, the first issue is that the products, a lot of people say, just don't taste good enough. So while the companies really wanted to create essentially a replica of a burger, many people tried those burgers and said, it's okay, it's not bad. Mm. Some people didn't like them at all. But very few meat lovers said, oh, this is great and I'm going to start swapping this in at every opportunity. And then another big question is whether they are really any healthier than the real thing. You know, a lot of people might say, okay, I'll pay a little bit more for this substitute if it's healthier. Mm -hmm. But as much as the companies wanted people to think that it was uh, healthy or healthier than the real thing, a lot of people started noticing how highly processed these products were. And some health professionals started saying, you know, I don't think that you should really be eating these. Speaking of, we have a health professional, nutritionist Dr. Christy Arts, weighing in on this very thing you're talking about. Let's take a listen. People hear that they're plant-based alternatives to meat products, so they think they may be healthier. But in fact, when you look at the ingredient list, they're typically high in saturated fat, high in sodium, and they're really just a processed food. So maybe big question marks about how healthy these alternatives are. But another selling point is the environment, right? They account for far less land use, far less greenhouse gas emissions. Is that pitch working on consumers? So that is something that really nobody argues with unless, you know, they're selling meat. But for the most part, the environmental benefits of these products are widely accepted and recognized. But consumers tend not to make purchasing choices based on environment as the top driver of that choice. Mm. I mean, that's going to be especially true when um, budgets are tight, as they are right now with inflation. And I think that the more somebody loves the thing that they want, like a burger, the less likely they are to be persuaded that the environment is a reason to give it up. You mentioned the price. It, it does cost more than the meat alternative but I wonder, could this just be a speed bump for this new thing? Right? We've had plenty of innovations that took a while, it went up and down, and then when the price finally got affordable, they really took off. I'm thinking of, I don't know, all renewable energies or something like that. Um, are there people who watch the industry or in the industry who are still optimistic? Price parity is a huge opportunity for the category to capture sales from people that, you know, maybe tried it and liked it, but not enough to pay extra. But taste is going to be right up there with the most important challenges that the category has. So they need to get prices down, but it's not the only obstacle. Yeah, I understand. And finally, uh, as far as the future of this industry, is it clear to you how these companies think about the target consumer? What is the profile of that person? I think the target consumer that these companies want to capture is the meat eater, the person who loves their burger, and they really are hoping that that person will swap in one of theirs or their sausage or their chicken nugget, whatever the product is. But what mm. we found is that the people that are actually most reliably going to come back and purchase these products over and over again are the vegans and vegetarians. And that is very much not the target consumer 
consumer for these companies, but that is who is buying the most on a per capita basis. Mm. I, I will say meat yeah. eaters do buy these products sometimes, but not with the kind of frequency that the vegans and vegetarians do. And I guess that is a bigger segment of the public, right? The meat eaters who they want to try to reach. That's right. And for them to be a growing category, they really need to persuade those meat eaters to keep coming back and to buy them more often because vegans and vegetarians make up a very small percentage of the population. The estimates are about 5%, and that number doesn't really change. So to grow their sales, they really need to make inroads with the meat eaters. That is Bloomberg's Dina Shanker. We will link to her reporting on our website, hereandnow.org. We've been talking to her about the plant-based meat industry and how it's doing. Dina, thanks for your time. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And one more thing before we go. Looking for a new book to read? This Black History Month, our producer Hafsa Qureshi called up a few Black bookstore owners for their recommendations. We'll share three of them now, starting with Hannah Oliver Depp, owner of Loyalty Bookstores in the D.C. area. I am delighted to recommend one of my favorite young adult fantasy everything novels called Legend Born by Tracy Dion. It's the first in an amazing new YA fantasy series featuring our girl Brie, who is a young Black woman gifted both in her academic skills and she is soon to find out with magic. So this is, yes, a coming-of-age novel. It is a discovery of the magic that exists within the Black body that so many have tried to stop out. And if you were a fantasy nerd who didn't get to see yourself in books so much, this book will hear your soul. And if you are looking for something to get you maybe out of a reading slump or as a gift for a young person, Legend Born is for you. My name is Jeffrey Blair, and I am the owner of the ICME African American Children's Bookstore in St. Louis, Missouri. I recommend everybody check out the book called A Boy and His Mirror by Merchant Davis. This is a beautiful picture book, and it features an African-American boy with long curly hair, sort of like an afro. And what I love about the book is that it really helps, you know, uh, individuals who may be different really find value in loving themselves, but also for all of us to really not judge individuals by the outward appearance, but allowing us all to really appreciate everyone's differences. Hello, my name is Michelle Lewis, and I am the owner alongside my husband, Charles Hanna, of Third Eye Books, Accessories and Gifts in Portland, Oregon. And I highly recommend the book, Rest is the Resistance, a Manifesto by Tricia Hershey. This book really encouraged bodies of culture to rest and to remove ourselves as much as possible from the grind culture. This book is personal to me because it just reminds me that it's it gives me permission that it's okay for me to rest my body and my mind so that I can be a better human being and a better person for the planet and the community. For more recommendations, including some staff favorites, head to hereandnow.org. Our stories today were produced by Hafsa Qureshi, Lynn Menegon, Thomas Daniellian, and James Mastro Marino. Just part of the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Our editors are Todd Munch, Julia Corcoran, Peter O'Dowd, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Max Liebman and Mike Moschetto. Theme music by Max, Mike, and me. Our digital producers are Grace Griffin and Allison Hagen. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.